you, Mark, and thank you, Grace. We are continuing together as a church family to work our way through the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is uh, one of the last books written in the New Testament, written by the Apostle John, and in many ways kind of a re- shows a lot of reflection. He, he, he builds on the foundation of the three other Gospels as he shows us Jesus Christ, and he begins very early on to make an important point. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. As he says in chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He says at the end of the book, he's writing this book that we might know that he is God and in knowing him have eternal life. In the first 12 chapters, he's laid out some of the key events in the life of our Lord. Not all events at all. He says also, if I were to tell you everything, that, if I were to write down everything that Jesus said and did, the world couldn't hold all the books. Rather, he, he takes some some specific teachings, some specific events to give us a picture of God in the flesh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We saw at the end of chapter 12 that there was a transition. In the end of chapter 12, we saw that that Jesus withdraws and no longer continues his public ministry. And then John kind of gives us a little summary at the end of some of what that significance of that is and, and how to understand that the, the, the nation of Israel is an unbelief. There are believers. He talks about even, uh, even in the Sanhedrin, even among the, the leadership, there are what he described as kind of secret believers. They were afraid to let their testimony be known for fear of man instead of the fear of God. But overall, the nation has rejected Christ. And there was an interesting event right at the end where some Greeks came, and that showed while the Jewish people were turning from their Messiah, the Gentiles were coming to him. And a great transition was about to happen. As as Israel put for a time on the shelf, and the gospel going broadly out to the Gentiles... And a, a, a primarily Gentile church starting to grow, which has been going on for 2,000 years. Well, that's where we left off in chapter 12, a, a closing, if you will, of, of the major chapter, the closing of the public ministry of Christ. Starting in chapter 13, we see more of the private ministry of Christ and then the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. But even that ends with a private encounter lunch by the sea. We come to a key section which is often called the upper room discourse and the upper room encounter of our Lord. I'm pleased to announce that if you were to look at chapters 13 through 17 that speak of that upper room experience and those hours of, of of wonderful teaching our Lord gave, you'll see that it falls into three sections. And interestingly, we can alliterate them. So in chapter 13, we find the introduction. In chapters 14 through 16, instruction. 
And in chapter 17, prayer. Now, I was going to say in chapter 13, we find preparation. Chapter 17, um, uh, prayer. But I really struggled to find a P for the teaching part. I thought about pedagogy, but I thought that might cause confusion. So instead, we'll go with instruction. Uh, we'll go with introduction, instruction, and then intercession. So often as we read of the three plus years of three and a half years or so of, of Jesus' ministry, we see him speaking to the crowds, an occasional conversation with his disciples. Here we get to sit in. Have you ever been in a situation where maybe you, you have, you, you're not really a participant, but you get to listen to a conversation? We get to sit in as Jesus sits down for a Passover Seder with his disciples and teaches them and shares his heart because he's trying to prepare them for the fact the next day he will die. We're coming into a very holy and sacred portion of scripture and, I, and may God help me to teach it. May God help each of us to hear it and take it to heart and to know our Savior more richly through it. The text before us this Lord's Day is, is John chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 11. John chapter 13, verses 1 to 11. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which, with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. Again, as I've said, the Lord has completed his, his public ministry and he's withdrawn uh, from, from that public teaching. And now he's focusing on his own disciples. We see in, in verse 1 how it's, we're told that uh, Jesus, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John gives us a time notice. He, he, he helps us see how this is proceeding. 
It's before the beginning of the feast of the Passover. Now I would take it, you know, the past the feast begins at sundown. I, I would say it's that afternoon. So we're right in the context of here comes the Passover. We've been building towards this. But the way he describes it is the feast, it's, it's just before the feast. And he knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. From eternity past, he and the Father had, had agreed that the, on this schedule. The Lord Jesus is to die at Passover. For the Passover lamb is a wonderful picture of the ministry of Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How do lambs take away sin? They die. And when you go back to the original Passover, what was happening? God was sending his wrath, his judgment on Egypt's rebellion. But each one who took the Passover lamb, put the blood on the doorposts, was spared the wrath of God. Jesus fulfills that. And again, in 1 Corinthians, you can see Paul talks about Jesus is our Passover. So the hour has come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He's, he's, for, he's to die and go to, to, to the Father. And that's very much in his mind. Here it is. The cross is tomorrow. And it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Sometimes when we're going through a difficult time, all we can think about is our difficult time and ourself, our pain, our sorrows, our fears, our anxiousness. John wants us to understand what was on the heart of the Lord as he was heading to the cross. He loved his own to the end. Now, the word to the end, I should tell you, you can read all kinds of commentaries and, and grammars, and that, that expression uh, can, can be taken two ways. It can, it can mean, to, some translations may even have something like to the uttermost, to the, to the, to the absolute, uh, speaking of the, the complete and full, unbounding love of the Savior, and that would be true. But the context here, he's talking about timing. It's Passover. The hour has come. He loved his disciples to the end. I think the whole point is right up, and that word end um, is actually related to the word it is finished. And so in other words, all, right up to the end, where, what, who's he thinking about? His disciples. With the cross coming before him, instead of being full of his, of his own thoughts, his heart is for his disciples. He knows this will be challenging. They've, they've, they've leaned on him for these three years. He's kept them together. He's guided them. He's instructed them. He's corrected them. And when he comes, it's going to be shattering. Strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. He knows that's coming. Had he a self-focus, he would be saying, these skunks, why should I have Seder with him? That's a loose translation of what I might be thinking. <laughs> I know you clowns are going to leave me. What? Leave now. But it's not that at all. He sees their departure and, and grieves over their fear, over their sorrow, over their loss. So even though the time for his own 
death. And more than that, even though the time of the wrath of God falling upon him was upon him, he loved his own straight to the end. That's where his heart is. He will, of course, pour out his heart, Gethsemane, if there's any other way. But the point is, whatever the way is, I'm taking it. Because that's why I came. He's love for his own. Now verse 2, and I'm, I'm reading from the New King James, and it says this. Supper being ended, the devil, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Supper being ended. It's not really a good translation. For one thing, if you will skip down verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he who, uh, whom I give a piece of bread and have dipped it. And it talks about him continuing on in the dinner. The dinner isn't over. A, a better translation, uh, supper having begun. So what he's saying is he's into, and what he wants us to understand is they're already, the Passover Seder has begun when Jesus takes his next steps. So we, fortunately, and this is why one reason is we do it, we, we celebrate a Passover Seder to recreate what, our, what was happening on that last night with that last supper. And so you'll recall some of the things that happened. But, but here we see the meal wasn't over. The meal had just begun. And, and, and John gives us some spiritual insight. The devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. As Jesus gathers for this final meal with his disciples, there's a traitor in the midst. Only Jesus and the traitor know. All the other disciples have no clue at all of that. The leaders... The Jewish leaders, the unbelieving Jewish leaders, have been plotting the death of Jesus. This disciple, who sits at the table, is also plotting to betray him. John tells us more than that. You know, if you follow through, anytime you see Judas Iscariot mentioned, he's, it's, it always says in the Gospels, the one who would betray him. You don't ever want to miss that. This is the traitor in their midst. But John tells us more than just the fact that he was betraying Jesus. He tells us about what was going on spiritually in his life. The devil having already put it into his heart to betray him. Literally, that word put into his heart has the idea of to throw. Now there's a, a big difference between put and throw, isn't there? If you hand your grandmother's china to your child and say, would you put these on the table and they throw them? Okay. That, that, that has a different meaning, doesn't it? You know, the idea is to, to cast, to throw. And I think it's a wonderful picture of how, what Satan does when he tempts. 
he, he casts like, like dropping a pebble into a, into a well or something. He, he drops an idea into our mind. He makes a suggestion. And so he, he, he dropped an idea into, into Judas's mind. Uh, J.C. Ryle expresses well kind of what that looks means. He says, this, this graphically describes the way in which Satan works. He casts into the heart of those he tempts the seeds of evil. The heart is the seed plot which he sows. Suggestion is one of his chief weapons. The sin of man consists in opening his heart to the suggestion and giving it a place and letting it sink down. So how does Satan tempt us? He tosses an idea in. A sinful idea. Something that draws our heart away from our affection for the Lord and our obedience to him. But, he, but Ryle describes it kind of like planting a seed. And the whole point is, you don't, it's not enough to, to drop a seed to grow a plant. The difference is, What's the soil look like? And I'm reminded of the parable. Remember, Jesus taught the parable of the sower uh, as, a, as a way of describing how the, how the gospel affects different ones differently. Many have said we shouldn't call it the parable of the sower, but the parable of the soils. Remember, he says one went out to, 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 to sow, that means casting his seed, and some lad landed on the pathway. Well, trodden down dirt that is so hard, nothing's going to grow there. The birds come, eat it, it's gone. Uh, there's no fruit from that soil. Uh, some, he describes, uh, lands in different soils, rocky soil, or, or soil where there's lots of weeds. And whether the rocky soil, you know, the no, no root, deep root can happen because it's, again, too hard, or, or, the, or the weedy soil, um, the, the, the plant starts to grow, but it's choked out by the weeds. Some of you in your garden will kind of sometimes use... Uh, a real leafy plant like a, a, a melon or something, so those big leaves will block out the weeds and choke them away from the sun. So, so those are illustrations of how a, um, a shallow heart, a, a hardened heart, or a choking out heart can resist the growth. And then the, finally, some goes on to prepared soil, and it, it produces 30, 60, 90 fold. The key is not as much the seed, though the seed has to have life in it, is the soil responsive to it. And so here's the point of temptation. Satan can drop in an idea. What kind of soil does it land in? If, you know, to, to, again, kind of this, the opposite thought of the sower and the seeds, the hardened path is a bad heart. But here, the hardened path I'm thinking of is, is a picture of a heart that is so trodden, so walked on in communion with the Lord and fellowship with him, no weed of temptation will even have a chance. Our communion with the Lord is so dear and so close that uh, the seed goes nowhere. That's where we want to be in our walk with the Lord. Uh, hardened to temptation because it's, it's, it's well worn in our walk with the Lord.
The other two soils, the, the rocky soil and the weeds, how quickly the, the seed dies out, either from lack of root or from the choking of the weeds. In this case, the weeds, you know, those things were signs of sin. But in the terms of response to the seed of temptation, what the, this shows us that we can choke out sin and temptation by things that, that take away a chance for it to have life. We can choke it out. Uh, we can crowd it out through time in the Bible, meaningful time, not just your eyes casting over the words, but meaningful time in the Bible. Time in prayer, that's communion with the Lord, fellowship with fellow believers. All these things are, are, are given by God to help us choke out the, the, the seed of temptation before it takes fruit in our life. I, I'm tempted to, to, to teach you all about gardening today. It won't take long. I know very little. <laughs> but have you ever seen the, uh, there, there's a product out there, weed and feed kind of things. In a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a lawn, there's two things you can do to get rid of weeds. One is you, uh, you, you, you put weed killer on the weeds. I'm always a little reluctant to do that. The way I would do it, the trees would all die. So I'm getting a little nervous about killing. So I, I focus on the feeding. In other words, if the rest of the turf grass is healthy, the weeds kind of get choked out. There's no room for them. To me, that's a, 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 that's a perfect picture of the Christian life. When you do have a weed, pluck it out. And when's the best time to pluck out a weed? When it's young. <laughs> it has very little root. You can grab those little things and they're gone. If you let it go for a while, just this weekend or this week, I, I, I did battle with poison ivy. And I was astonished how a little plant could have massive roots. Um, the key is you get it. Oh, it's wonderful when you can grab it and it's just a little root and you know you got the whole thing. That's how we deal with temptation. You pluck that thing out as soon as the seed lands. Cast it out. And choke it out by healthy Christian growth. The more closely we're walking with the Lord and his thoughts are filling our mind, his ways are filling our path, the temptation is just not going to, to, to flourish. It's going to be squeezed out by the healthy things of a walk with the Lord. Judas was nowhere there. He's not even a believer. And here's the amazing thing. Three years. Three years with our Lord. Living in community with him. Walking with him. Hearing his teaching. Seeing the miracles. Apparently able himself to do miracles as he was sent out. Remember Jesus sent them out two by two to do miracles. And no one came back and said, what was the problem with Judas? His never worked. Wait a minute, could, could, could Judas do the miracles? Well, it's God doing the miracles anyway. Think of Balaam's donkey. If God wants a donkey to talk, he'll talk. So here's the point. Judas had every opportunity. He seized none of it. And so Satan's seed landed into soil fertile for sin. And it flourished so that he could trade the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. We need to learn from Judas. 
The heart is a deceitful thing. And even born again believers, we still have a sinful capacity in our heart until we're in the presence of the Lord. That's one of the wonderful things I'm looking forward to leaving behind. Sin. And so we have to ever be vigilant to pluck the weeds young, to say no to this sin, to say no to that sin, and to flourish a vital Christian life that will choke out the other. Satan gave in. And he fell. Well, the text goes on to say, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garment, took a towel, and girded himself. So we've been, with the scene is set. Passover. The meal has begun. And there's a disciple at the table where Satan's weed is flourishing. And then we're told that Jesus got up. He rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. What a picture. Well, you've been to our Seder, most of you, and you've seen how, what that happens. The meal's begun, the blessing, the first cup, and then the host gets up, and he's supposed to, what he does, he's supposed to do is he washes his hands. That's why when Jesus got up to wash to, to, from the table, and even when the, the pouring of water was heard, they hardly paid attention. That's what happens at that point in the meal. The meal's begun, but the host will wash his hands because he's about to handle some of the food and hand it out. But instead, Jesus goes over, and then he takes off his outer garment, he takes the towel of a servant and wraps it around himself. And then he takes that basin of water and instead of washing his hands, he goes to the feet of each of the disciples. Now when we think of doing that, say if you think about a, your dining table or the tables we'll be in in the gym in just a little while and sitting around them, it would be very hard to get to your feet to wash them. But remember, they were reclining at these t low tables. So think of it as a kind of a U of tables and all of them have their feet away from the table, so it's the most easiest thing of all to access them. But we're told that the meal had already begun. That's not when this is supposed to happen. When you go to someone's home for a dinner, they're supposed to you know, greet you and give you an opportunity or have a servant there to wash your feet for you to, before you come in and even start. But there was no servant. An upper room was provided, but there was no servant. And you didn't see any of the disciples saying, here, I'll do that. In fact... Luke tells us that even just before this happened, they were arguing among themselves who was the greater. Part of the whole issue is with sitting at these tables, there was a, you know, favored seats and less favored seats. You know, you, maybe you go to a banquet or something and you kind of figure out your, your, where you stand in this thing. You know, maybe a political banquet or a Christian banquet and you can, if you're a political banquet, you can see the candidate up there. You think that's who that is. 
Which, and you can't really hear them because of all the clatter of the noise from the kitchen where they seated you. you know, you're not in the best seat. If you're sitting in the seat where every time he cuts his steak, he nudges you with his elbow, you're in a place of honor. And so they're debating who gets which seat. They hardly even notice Jesus getting up from his seat to go and then to their shock, he starts washing their feet. I imagine things got very quiet very quickly. A very awkward sense of what is going on here. Jesus acting like a slave. John, notice how John describes how he dropped his garment, wrapped the towel. This is an eyewitness account, isn't it? It's just very vivid. And as he did, he took the water, washed them. I see a picture going on here, and he'll even compare it to dealing with sin in our lives. Right here, he's acting out his whole ministry. You see, Jesus came from glory. And what did he do? He, didn't be, he couldn't give up his glory. He couldn't stop being God. But he could set aside the manifestation of his glory, which he did. Or no one could be in his presence. He set aside the manifestation and the benefits of glory. As, he, as, he, as when he took off that outer garment. And then he wrapped himself in the towel of a servant. Jesus wrapped himself in the, in the servanthood of, of humanity. Again, the God of infinity, the God of eternity became a crying baby. The sovereign, omnipotent one needed his mother to turn him over. The one who spoke all of creation into being had to be taught how to say mother and father, abad, ima. He he shed his glory, the manifestation of his glory, to become a servant and to wash the dirt of sin from his followers. Verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, before John tells us about this humble servanthood, he tells us Jesus knew who he was. This is such a, a perfect picture of what we read earlier, Chad, you read for us in the call to worship in Philippians 2. Jesus knew, of course, his deity. He didn't forget eternity in glory in the presence of the Father. He knew the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going to God. And, in, and I would say in spite of that, he, took all, he, he humbled himself. Philippians 2, let each of you Look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He knew he was God. He didn't think he was some terrible thing to claim deity. He is deity. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, 
coming in the likeness of men. He shed that robe. He wrapped himself in the towel. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And I even think of when he, it says, John tells us, as he washed their feet, he would then wipe them on his towel. And that, to me, that's a kind of a picture of how uh, our sin was wiped on Jesus as he washed us clean. Have you ever seen, especially your child or worse, your husband come in and wash his hands after being outside? And now you've got to change out the towel because uh, (laughs) the washing wasn't all that it should have been. And so I imagine that servant's towel that wrapped was girded, had the dirt of 12 who had walked through the, the, the dusty streets of Jerusalem all day. He took it upon himself. What a picture of why he came and how he came. What a picture of love to the end and servanthood. Well, here comes Peter. Then he came to Simon Peter and and, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what am I, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but you will after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you, you have no part with me. Um, if I can translate the Greek a little differently, it's, it's, he says, Lord, you, my feet are washing? The Greek kind of puts, can, can emphasize things by putting words in a different order. Lord, you, my feet, are washing? He shows his shock by saying, uh, no, uh, you can't, you're never going to wash my feet. Some of you, some of us, have told God what he's never going to do in our life. How'd that work for you? That's almost a guarantee. Oh, first on the list. I think of how the, the one thing is I went into ministry and headed off to seminary. The one thing that was clear in my life is I was never going to be involved in planting a church. Been there, done that. So um, let me give you some counsel. Don't tell God what he's not going to do in your life. He, he can be very creative in showing you he's God, he's sovereign, and you'll see. So Peter, no, no you're never going to wash my feet. And, and Jesus responds, if I don't wash your feet, if, you, 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 if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now he's not talking about the dirt on his feet, right? This is all about an illustration of dealing with sin, but he's not talking here about salvation, unsalvation. He's talking to a, a saved man and, and he uses the expression, you will, you will have no part with me. He's talking about fellowship and communion. Unless I deal with your, unless we deal with these, your, these daily sins, the, the dirt that comes from walking in a fallen world, you're not going to have communion and fellowship with me. He's not talking about saved, lost here. He's talking about closeness of a walk. The psalmist says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not hear my prayer. And so he's saying, this this is how we 
we keep those weeds from growing. We've got we to gotta wash it out on a regular basis. Now, Simon Peter, love this guy, right? Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. If I were doing the film, I might pan back and you can just see the other disciples shake, rolling their eyes, shaking their head. Oh, Peter. Always, uh, at least you know where you stand with Peter, right? But Jesus uses an illustration. He uses, uh, he describes it in, in what was so common in those days. If, if, some, if you were invited to someone's dinner, a banquet, um, before you would go, you would, you would bathe. Um, you know, things were hot. You worked hard. You know what that's like. You parents. Think about when the boys come in from being in the yard. Okay? Before you go to someone's house, you bathe them. You come in, they put a little um, scented oil. It helps everybody. But you, you, just walking there, your feet are going to be dirty. And so he says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. He is completely clean. You're, you're clean. You took the bath. But just this travel dust. What he's describing is, he makes that important statement, you're clean, but not all of you. He's, when he's talking about clean, but not all of you, he's talking about salvation. When you trust in Christ... You're cleansed. He's talking about the traffic dirt, not the salvation dirt. Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. When God saves us, it's a work of the Holy Spirit that, that gives us new life and cleanses us from our guilt of sin. But there's that traffic dirt of, of living in a fallen world and having an abiding continuing sin presence but he said not all of you you are clean but not all of you verse 11 explains that for he knew who would betray him therefore he said you're not all clean he's talking about Judas you all have, have had the bathing of regeneration that cleans you from your guilt. And does so much more, right? Gives you eternal life and so all of that. But not all of you. Judas was not born again. And some of us will wrestle with, was Judas a believer? No. He says it right here. You're all clean, but not, not all of you. You could say you're all saved, but not all of you. He was never born again. He never knew the Lord. Is Jesus just figuring that out now? Of course not. John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71. Jesus answered them, Do I, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it is he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. There again, John, when, I, when, he tell, when, they, when they tell you about Judas, they always say, The traitor. The traitor. But notice what he says. I chose you, 12. Don't get confused. I'm not talking about the big crowd. You guys, right here, I chose you personally. One of you is a devil. One of you is lost. One of you is unregenerate. One of you has, has, has no living faith in Christ. 
Now, why? That, this will be one of the fun things to talk about when we get to heaven. Peter, John, Philip, why didn't you guys do the math and say, wait a minute, who is it? But Judas had, had them all fooled. Remember, when one of you is going to betray me, again, I paint the movie, everybody looks at Judas, you skunk. But they didn't. Is it me? Am I the one? He fooled them. He didn't fool the Lord. That John 6 tells us that. I know one of you is a devil. And now at the end of it, he says, you're all clean, but not all of you. There's such a warning here. It's easy to be in a fellowship of believers. And, and they, these guys knew each other well. A group of 12, three years, living, traveling, ministering together. And yet they missed it. You can walk, you, you, you can talk the talk, and go through the motions, you get the vocabulary, but your heart not know the Lord. That, that was Judas. Again, you hear me share the importance of knowing Christ in a saving way, and so I always feel the responsibility talking to church folk. Just because you're in this building, just because you know the talk, you can quote verses. Who was it? Uh, Nikita Khrushchev. He could come right in here. Well, not now. He won an award for being able to recite the four Gospels. Now, I don't mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I did it. He could recite the text of the four Gospels. He was not a believer. The issue is, what did, what did tell, Jesus tell Nicodemus? You must be born again. He didn't say, you need to memorize more verses. You need to go to more seminars. You need to do this. You need to do that. He said, you need to be born again. You need to work with the Holy Spirit. And so, but Judas knew it, right? As he sat at that dinner, he'd already made, made the transaction with the, with the priests. He knew. And so just a reminder, just because you're, going, you're raised in a Christian home, going to a church, you know. Do you know the Lord? Are you born again? You're unsure, if you're unsure of that, clear it up with the Lord. We can help you if you need to talk. But just a reminder out there, get to know people before you say, are they really a believer? Again, here's my plug. You hear me say to those who marriage is still in the future. Just because someone goes to a church, just because someone says this or that, that doesn't mean they're born again. Look for the evidence of God the Holy Spirit working in their life. Look for the fruit of the manifestation of the product of God's Holy Spirit in life. The, 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 the leaven were saved. But they still needed the, you know, the, the cleansing. And so that's a reminder to us. When we come, uh, especially before the Lord's table, and if I don't forget it, we have a prayer of confession. One of these days, you guys are going to have to start throwing hymn books at me and say, confess, you forgot to have us Confess. But we pray, pray of confession, you know, just to remind us that we need to deal with our sin. 
We need to pluck that weed out early. And we need to encourage the growth that would choke out sin in our life. There's a lot of spiritual truth in these few verses. But we see our Lord loving his disciples up to the end. Teaching them eternal truth. Teaching them spiritual truth. Manifesting it before them. And John having the grace to write it down for us. To see our Lord in his mercy. What a God of grace and wonder. To shed the glories of heaven. To wrap himself in a towel of servanthood. To live in this sinful world and to take our sin upon himself that we might be made ready for glory. What a God of grace and wonder. Our Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for your love for us in sending your own Son to die in our place. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ coming. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for giving yourself for us. Father, I pray if any here or any who hear these words is yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, may you use these words to awaken that heart. And may your Holy Spirit enable that heart to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, for those of us, your children, renew in us a diligence of dealing with these weeds of sin before they dig a taproot into our heart, that we might faithfully honor you. I pray it in Jesus' name.